Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. Today's episode is brought to us by BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's exactly what you would write in the sand if you were stuck on an island, right? H-E-L-P, help. And then you see the helicopter go by, you start waving. BetterHelp is that helicopter. They are the ones that will save you. They will pick you up. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? I know for me, it's been a sense of feeling inadequate or uh, afraid of expressing my needs. Because like, if I express my needs and they say no and they find out what I really want, they're going to leave and I'll be abandoned and I have to start all over again. And, and also just comparing myself to other people. Every time I compare, I get on social media and I see the, the amazing life that other people are living, it just makes me want to just curl up and stop doing everything that I'm doing. But BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. Now, I understand when you are in uh, despair and, and you are spiraling, you just feel like, the last thing I want to do was talk to anybody, but it's the best thing to do. When, when I was in trouble, when I couldn't see my way through the, the, the thickness, through the darkness, it was talking to someone, especially a professional therapist that guided me through. I still have a therapist. I have not only my own therapist, but I have a couple's therapist. So me and my girlfriend have a therapist. Like therapy, talking to someone is so beneficial but it doesn't feel like it when you're in the midst of it. Now, I want you to remember that it's not a crisis line. Better help is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. Better help is not the right solution for you if you have thoughts of hurting yourself or others. There is a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. The service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room with, as with traditional therapy. You could kick back at the crib at your house in Sukasa and get your therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy and Free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling. And here's the kicker, ladies and gents. Financial aid is available. That's right. But you, ain't, you don't have to go to college. College ain't the only one doling out financial aid. BetterHelp has financial aid because BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit their website and read their testimonials that are posted daily, right? Check them out. Visit BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. That's right. I got a slash before the name. Go to BetterHelp.com forward slash Leo. That's Better H-E-L-P and join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Special offer. Here's a special offer. Check this out. I just, 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 just came in just now. Special offer for my Before You Kill Yourself listeners. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. That's right. Just for tuning in, just for being a, a friend, uh, an ally, uh, 
just somebody who I could just, who I enjoy spending my time with, 10% off your first month if you go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo. Let's go. Now, where are you from, Jacint? I'm originally from Uganda. I was born there, but I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. Oh, my God. So at what age did you move to Las Vegas? I was a baby. I'm pretty sure I was an infant when my family had moved. Um, My dad came first, and then my mom and me like followed shortly after. So I was I was really young. I spent most of my time in Vegas. So people call me a native. Yeah, absolutely. And then have you been back? The first time I went back was in 2014. And um, unfortunately, it was after my father had passed away. Mm. But um, after that, I went again last year. Um, with my cousin because we started a nonprofit. So the goal now is to go back at least annually. Now, what's the nonprofit about? So that was bred out of being first generation, third culture kids. Um, we were born in another country and raised here in the States. So the experience is a little bit unique because we don't necessarily feel like we fit in in either place, you know? Um And that comes with its own mental health concerns and social issues and things like that. But my cousin, who's older than me, went back to Uganda when she was 18. And it helped her to really kind of understand her sense of herself better, if that makes sense. And then when I went back, I had the same experience. So it's pretty much to promote for uh, first-generation youth to visit their country of origin, to understand their culture, uh, customs, and you know, practices more as well as um, their service oriented trips that we take. So the first trip in order to kind of help fund that agenda was actually taking master's students in public health from National University to Uganda. And they volunteered in the hospital and did community outreach and stuff like that. So we facilitated the study abroad trip essentially for National University to Uganda. And then that helped us to get money to then hopefully take some youth because we want to be able to pay for it completely. See, I love that because I have some Jewish clients and they have their, I forget what it is. Birthright. The birthright. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I need I need a I need a birthright back I, now because I've been yes. to Egypt, right. We we should have that. Um, I've been to Egypt, but I feel like that don't really count. That's like coming to America, but you only been to Alaska. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I feel. <laughs> I, oh my goodness! I feel like I got to go back. For sure, I think that it, it's uh, pivotal for for any person that is you know, has origins or ancestors from the continent of Africa to touch down and put their feet, you know what I mean? Like on the ground, in the soil. Um, It's honestly, every person that I know that has been able to visit, it's been life-changing for them. Yeah, I I would imagine because um, there's so much in terms of imagery that uh, we get through the media that when, when we go there to Africa, um, we, we realize that it's it's not a- anything like what we've been fed, and um, it's, I know like Nigeria's blowing up, and now you got Ethiopia, yeah. and Eritrea. Now they shaking hands, you know, <laughs> and now they rubbing bellies together. It's a beautiful thing. 
Yeah, you know, it's something that on the other side, I'm really passionate about because, um, you know, black people in the diaspora want to travel, but heavily when we ask people where they want to go, the continent of Africa is not high on that list, if at all, you know? Um, And I think that propaganda and all of the stories that here in America were told about the continent of Africa force people to view it in a specific way and each country differently. So I think when people get a chance to actually go there and see what it's like for themselves, um, it kind of shatters the the picture that we've been painted by media our whole lives, you know? Yeah, it's and the only mention of going to Africa is to go on a safari. Like, <laughs> like you don't want to see the people at all? <laughs> it's, it's yeah. Such you a know, random it's, thing. It's wild. It's wild. But it's, it's definitely different to go to a place, especially being a person of color, to go to a place where everyone looks like you, to be the majority and have that experience is... It's unmatched. All right, so let's let's get into what what you do now. You're a marriage and family therapist, and you, you specialize in working primarily with women uh, and, and the young ladies who are struggling with anxiety, self esteem, coping skills, uh, trauma, and, and and recovery from uh, s- sexual assault. At this at this point in your practice, what are most women coming to you for? Most women are coming to address either anxiety, depression, or some kind of trauma, um, mostly from childhood or their upbringing. And that's the highest number of, of presenting problems that I get in my office. All right. So when we talk about anxiety, is this like related to climate? Is it related to uh, their laptops not working correctly? Like, what, what, what is the, the anxiety? That was supposed to be a joke. Okay. Uh, what's the, <laughs> <laughs> that was supposed to be like a callback to, the, okay, nothing. All right, good. Uh, <laughs> what, you know, I, I'm actually the worst with jokes. So I have to okay. let you know that lit- so many jokes go over my head and then I'm like two seconds later, I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing by myself because it's, it's already been gone. So okay. that's me, not you. Okay. All right. I, I appreciate the validation. Oh, you're good. Um, I know, I'm good. <laughs> the now, I, I, can we do two things? One is, can we define what anxiety is and how it shows up in a body? And then, two, uh, the coping skills that are usually uh, the antidote to these feelings of anxiety. Yeah, so I'll give you the spiel that I typically give to my clients. At this point in my practice, the way that I see it, is twofold. That when we think of things that happened in the past, it has the potential to make us sad. And when we get stuck and ruminate, right, we hear that word rumination a lot when we talk about depression and whatnot. Then when we get stuck in the past, thinking shoulda, coulda, woulda, all that stuff, it leads to depression. So I see it on a spectrum. And that's when we're stuck in the past. And it leads to paralysis. So that's why people that are depressed don't want to get out of bed. They lack motivation or energy to do anything. They don't want to, they, they're unable to do maybe basic functions as far as like taking care of themselves and whatnot because they're stuck in the past. And that's like having zero gas, zero energy. On the other side, however, when we think about negative 
outcomes in the future, not positive, because if I like Disneyland and I'm getting ready to go to Disneyland in January when all this is over, that's called excitement. But when I hate Disneyland in my whole body and mind, and I have a plan to go to Disneyland because someone is forcing me or whatever the case may be, thinking of negative outcomes in the future leads to worry and nervousness on a basic scale. But when we get stuck focusing and replaying and, and doing all of the what if scenarios and, and that's going to lead to anxiety. So I see that on a spectrum as well, which also leads to paralysis because when someone is experiencing anxiety, then they're overwhelmed. They're scatterbrained. They don't know where to begin. You have stuff to do, but you don't even know where to start. So you're, you're paralyzed to move because of that worry of something bad happening in the future. The way that it shows up in the body is that it could lead to, you know, um, some physiological effects such as your heart rate changing. Um, it could lead to, it could go all the way to like messing with your vision, you know, it stress on the body. We are able to cope with when it's short term, but we are not built to manage and maintain chronic stress over time. So when we experience chronic stress, if someone's in a traumatic situation or relationship or living in a traumatic climate or something like that, we're experiencing stress over the long term that really has some negative effects on the body biologically, chemically, um, really in a lot of different ways. And so that's when someone gets stuck in the future. To me, I've come to the realization that my practice happens to be quite mindfulness-based because if you're not in the past and you're not in the future, where are you? You're in the present. And so a lot of things in the moment are typically okay if we sit and look around a room. That's why grounding works. That's why meditation and mindfulness have a high likelihood of working. That's why CBT works because it's helping clients to hopefully visit the past and the future so that we can make informed decisions in the present moment, but not getting stuck there. How do we gently bring ourselves back to the moment um, so that we're not experiencing distress over the long term? So that's kind of like my quick spiel that I typically give to clients and my go-to um, methods on how to help clients deal with those symptoms. Uh, you know, I love that you said, how do we gently bring ourselves into the current moment yeah, it, because it makes me think of those old black and white movies where, like, the woman would be going uh, crazy hysterically and yelling, and then a guy mm -hmm. would slap her to, oh. you know, <laughs> right? And, or he would shake her. Or, you know, we and, and, and we do that uh, in and, and maybe not such a violent way now. And that was acceptable to show on television. And that was that was just like what was on TV in those old black and white uh, or uh, people, you know, throw cold water on their faces mm -hmm. or, um, you know, yell or breathe into a bag. Like all these kind of jarring ways um, uh, to, to snap us back into the present. So I like the idea that you said, how do we gently, lovingly, compassionately bring ourselves into the here and now? That's how I know I'm a terrible person because that made me laugh. And that's not funny. But... <laughs> <laughs> but it's really important because every interaction or experience that we have around that process of either moving from the present to another place or from another place to the present make a difference in how we feel about it. So if you have to be jarred into the present by getting slapped, 
by someone snatching you, right? Like kids get snatched by their parents and to, to come to the realization that they need to make a different decision in the moment. But then that gives us an association around coming back to the present moment. We want to enjoy coming back. We want it to be something kind of like base. When you played tag as a kid, um, you want it to be your base. All right. So let me ask you this because, and tell me what you think. I feel like there's a place for everything, right? Like, like you said, like anxiety uh, we're mm-hmm. built for short term, not long term. That's not good for us. So there's a place for anxiety. How do we, what's the place for looking back at the past and what's the place for looking towards the future, right? Like if I'm looking in the past, how do I go back there without getting stuck there and without it causing uh, all the pain and distress? And how do I look towards the future without it causing, without it being maladaptive? Like how do we navigate those in in very practical ways? Yeah. So I'm also very attachment oriented in my practice. So I really do think and believe that the experiences we have in our early childhood highly influence how we are as adults and how we experience the world. So a lot of the times people will come in as adults and say, you know, they had a certain type of upbringing, their parents were a certain type of way, and that gets in the way of them being able to have fulfilling, satisfying relationships now. And so what I work to do is help them to see the context of their experience and what you can pull from that and learn and then, you know, take the meat, leave the bone, if that makes sense. It's already happened. We don't want to invalidate the experience, but we want to use the experience as a way of understanding, you know, how we seek to be and live our best potential now. So, um, I would say that being able to look at the things that we've been through and, you know, for the other side, as far as anxiety goes, looking into the future to be able to foresee certain obstacles, but then gently bring yourself back. And you know, it's maladaptive when you can't come back. You know what I mean? And I say it in session with clients. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, come back, come back. You know, if I see him going down the rabbit hole and I'm like, do you want to stay there? Is it time to come back? So, um, we know that it's maladaptive when we have trouble coming back from that place and it'll show up in our relationships and our, the way we react to situations. So if I have a partner now and they say oranges and I have a bad experience with oranges in my early childhood. And when they say oranges, I flip out. Well, we know that when they go to that place that they're having trouble coming back and understanding the context and what, um, that may be potentially being an isolated incident that they don't have to continue to repeat and live through now. So in terms of, cause you talked about going, using the past to kind of take the meat, leave the bone is something we should learn from. So for a person who may have been sexually abused or has some sexual trauma, uh, how do they take the meat and leave the bone? In situations like that, I think that, you know, that type of healing is very complex or that type of pain is very complex, which can make the healing um, complex. And taking the meat and leaving the bone in that situation is how do we be able to be in the world that we are in now and be able to identify the types of relationships, what our boundaries are, how we feel we deserve to be treated now 
with what we can control based on the experiences that we've had. And it's not because we're saying, it's not because we're taking responsibility for what anyone else has done to us or anything like that. But we can clearly see like, what are you comfortable with? So people that have experienced sexual assault have a tendency to be on edge sometimes, you know what I mean? So it's like, what in your current relationships, intimate relationships, because a lot of people have intimacy issues that come along with that. What are you comfortable with? Do you need someone to not touch you on your shoulder from behind because you need to see them coming and you need to know that they're about to touch you? Do you need to have your partner ask for permission to sit next to you or to be close to you because that's what you're comfortable with? It's because of the experience you had before, but it's not um, your fault or or um, hopefully continuing to get in the way of you being able to move forward in the present. You know, I love that you asked the question, what are you comfortable with? I find that a lot of growth happens in asking the right questions, right? And Mm -hmm. I love that word comfortable because so often when we hear the word comfortable, it's in like these motivational speeches in terms of <laughs> if you want to grow, you got to you gotta be comfortable with being mm. uncomfortable. And so I think that a, a lot of people who've been through trauma internalize that and, and feel like, oh, mm. well, I sh- I'm, if, I'm, if I want to grow, then I should be comfortable with this uneasiness, with this discomfort. Mm. And so can, can, you, can you speak to, like, can we, put, can we give some context to that? Yeah, I think that, um, unfortunately, those who have had experiences like that also have a high tolerance for discomfort. So they'll let things slide that they wouldn't otherwise because that tolerance is pretty high. And I think that we can also be uncomfortable when we're being vulnerable. And vulnerability, we oftentimes see as weakness, but I think that it takes a really strong person to be vulnerable and honest with themselves about what they need and then communicate that to other people. And so um, to flip it on its head, you know what I mean, is that, okay, if you need to be, if we're going to go with the notion that you need to be uncomfortable um, in order to grow, well, then that maybe means that we need to understand, talk about, heal from the uncomfortable things that you went through so that you can grow and no longer let it stand in your way. Um, if it's, we don't want to get comfortable and keep pushing the boundaries of, of our limits, because that's going to take us to a place where we, we either blow up or run away. You know what I mean? So I'm attachment focused. Everything comes down to uh, our fear is triggered it's going to stimulate a fight, flight, or freeze response. So that's why people in relationships have a tendency to either ghost people, to blow their phone up, (laughs) or, or like, what's the word? Clam up when they're triggered. So um, what we don't want is people to be pushing those limits because the realm of trauma is different than, you know, if you haven't had that be a part of your story and you're just doing regular personal growth. You know what I mean? It's different. Those are different realms. I love that. And I I appreciate you for clearing that up. Um, When you talk about the future, right? Because we're still talking about anxiety and, and, and we talked about how, uh, you know, staying in a future can, can be maladaptive and, and, and and bring up uh, some uncomfortable feelings. And you talked about how, uh, a healthy way or an adaptive way is to just think about the obstacles and then challenges that might come up. 
how else do we how do we use that specifically when you say uh think about the challenges and the obstacles of the future yeah so if someone has a tendency to practice worrying about the future then it's not as if certain things are and haven't already crossed their minds but they ha- they haven't allowed those things to cross their minds and then use like a a solution focused lens to help come up with some ways to manage that, if that makes sense. So yes, you're worried about having this conversation with your boss. So what are some things that you think are going to happen and what do you, what replies or things can you kind of prepare yourself with, whether it's information, answers, questions to go into that meeting, um, feeling like, okay, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but at least I have some tools it's about hope because you may never have exactly the right tool or exactly the right answer for things. But if we have hope, then we can typically do things off of hope, if that makes sense. So visiting the future, being able to foresee the obstacles, but not let it lead to this downward spiral of woe is me, nothing's ever going to change, fill in the blank, and instead position yourself in a place of solving problems when you look at those obstacles in the future and brainstorm some solutions. That's going to feel, it's going to make you feel hopeful, which will then make you feel like you can at least try that thing out, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. It definitely makes sense. I mean, it, if when we plan and we feel prepared, then that does create hope. It's, it's when we're just kind of sitting on our hands that allows that fear and anxiety to kind of build on itself and gain momentum. Yeah. So when I used to work, I used to work at UNLV, um, the university here in Las Vegas with freshmen, underrepresented youth. And, you know, there was a lot of test anxiety and things like that. The research shows that test anxiety has a high correlation with lack of preparation. So the more prepared someone is, the less anxious they feel. And that, to me, kind of is something that can be uh, kind of taken into the grander context that the more prepared we feel, it doesn't even have to be true, the more prepared we feel, the less anxious we'll be. And that's why, again, things like CBT work, because you can walk yourself through negative thoughts or, you know, those automatic negative thoughts and challenge them. And as you challenge them and realize, are they even valid in the first place, what we think is going to happen? then we feel more prepared for those situations, which then makes us experience less distress in the moment. You know, I do stand up and the more prepared I am for the show, the less anxiety I feel. Uh, but also mm-hmm. have, I have, there's, I have, well, I have two additional tactics that I add to that is one is I realize that I have to work out. Uh, if I have like an exam or something big coming up, I have to, yeah. I have to physically get that out of my body. And then two, I have to have something planned for after the event that mm. I anticipate. It's something that, you know, like whether it's going to see a movie or I think that's why a lot of people go to bars after work or mm-hmm. they, they don't have that to have a release valve planned, whether it's just go get a massage or go hang out with friends, but something to where my day is not dependent on uh, that major event you know, like the test is like, if you have a, if you have a test then have something planned after. So you're not caught up in thinking about it and how you did, et cetera. 
I want to scream because I'm like, yes, but that would be bad for audio. Um, that's exactly, exactly what I talk about with clients is that not only do we have to be prepared, we have to be able to detach ourselves from the outcome. So one of the reasons why we experience stress or the, or anxiety is because we're so attached to outcomes going a specific way. So for a lot of women that I work with and stuff, they've already decided that by 30, they're supposed to be, have been married with one kid and half a dog and whatever, you know what I mean? Like the white picket fence picture. And because they're getting closer and closer to that age and not, they're not seeing that outcome occur and they're attached to it, that they're experiencing anxiety. And so when we can detach ourselves from the outcome, knowing that your life will go on if you fail this test completely and have to take it again, if you don't get into this school, if you don't get this job, if you, if this relationship doesn't work out, the world will not end. And having something like an event, like you said, something to do after to kind of commemorate that, I think is absolutely genius, you know? Um, and I always mention that when we're driving, if we get a flat tire, we can't just keep driving with the flat tire. We have to stop. But even if we take the tire off, we can't drive without a tire on the car at all. We have to replace it. So people get so focused and hung up on the negative things, whether it's the outcomes, whether it's the things that they've been through, that they want to get rid of whatever that negative thing is, which makes sense. But we don't spend enough time figuring out what to replace, like a flat tire, what to replace that thing with. So if we shift our focus to what we can replace the outcome with that we're so attached to, then we have hope. Again, hope is all that anybody needs to keep going. We don't even actually need results. If we have hope, then we feel like, okay, I can, I can wake up another day and do this, you know, like, okay, I can, I can try again and, and maybe things will go better. You know what I mean? So the, the question that we, sh we should be asking ourselves is not what are your goals, but what is what gives you hope? Exactly. Yeah. When we look at, uh, you know, test anxiety that w what we were talking about, because, you know, when it's part of people who end some people who end their lives, it it's uh, a lot of it's linked to with schoolwork and, and, and feelings of failure and people not knowing how to deal with, you know, getting an app mm. on a test or uh, uh, not passing a grade or, or what have mm -hmm. you. Um, and we, we talked about like having something, you know, that you do before, having something planned after. Is there also, uh, when we look at postpartum depression, what, is that the case for that also in that there's such an expectation of, of what's going to happen when they have the baby uh, and so much emphasis is put on that? Uh, that, but because they don't have anything, I'm not sure how to phrase this. Like having the baby is like taking the test. That's the event. And then, uh, the expectation is that you're going to feel amazing, which would be like an A, but then you don't, I, I guess mm -hmm. the question is what could we plan post pregnancy to detach from the outcome of having the baby? Yeah. You already kind of mentioned it, which I think is genius is that because the expectation is so high and because society paints this picture of how pregnancy is supposed to look and how motherhood, early motherhood is supposed to look, that when someone experiences something outside of that picture, that it's not only that the experience or the outcome is a letdown, that we attach it to our character and our identity. 
So then not only is it that I feel like crap after having this kid that I'm supposed to love, I actually can kind of, they're annoying or whatever, like cry in the middle of the night, I'm tired or whatever. It's that I then feel like a bad person, like a bad mom, a bad human because of how I feel. So there's this compounding effect, just like with the tests. Not only does it mean that I failed the test, it's not just about the test. It's about the meaning we attach to having failed, that I am stupid, that I am worthless because my worth is attached to my career or my degree or whatever. And um, in order to help mitigate that after response for those who have children, um, I think education is key. So I think that pregnant people being educated before, during, after as much as possible to prepare for the potential outcome is necessary because as a woman um, in my childbearing years, I can name on my one finger, actually, how many times we talked about, you know, reproductive, the reproductive process when I was in school. One time, I think it was like eighth grade or something like that. We watched a video of a baby being born and I was like, whoa, I don't know if I want to do that. (laughs) That looks creepy. And we never really talked about it again. So we don't get a lot of education, whether it's coming from the household and your parents educating you, whether it's coming from the school, whether whatever, you know, Um, I don't think that both women and men are getting enough education around what things really look like. And I also think because we live in a rugged individualistic society, America, that we don't have the collective community to support us in that process. The saying, it takes a village, didn't come from nowhere. So having a baby, yes, one person birthed them out of their body, but having support like a postpartum doula, a lot of people don't even know what a postpartum doula is. Someone to be there to support you emotionally and physically through the process of those early days and months, maybe even years of having a child, as opposed to people thinking, I'm supposed to grow this baby for nine months, pop them out, and I'm supposed to be the primary caregiver of this child on my own and enjoy it. That's crazy. You know, like that's crazy making. Right. Because when we think about having a baby, uh, historically, you know, there was the, uh, I forget what the, the midwife, mm-hmm. uh, who was there, you know, through with you throughout the entire process. And like you said, uh, you, you literally were, when you gave a baby, the, the whole village knew that you were giving a baby and, and everybody was stopping by and, and all the mm-hmm. shenanigans. Uh, so yeah, that whole idea of we've only applied that idea of it takes a village to raise children, uh, to just children, but it takes a, a village for adults too. Like no, no adult wants to be by themselves. Yeah. You know what? I'm like children, at least if they can walk and they can talk, like they're all right. You know, like it takes, it takes a village to, to get things off the ground. You know what I mean? Um, and maybe throughout the whole entire process, but I think because of, you know, the combination of the society that we live in, the media, I almost want to say like propaganda, because it's not true that, you know, this experience of motherhood is the same for everybody, um, that we are constantly like early on, little girls have little baby dolls. It's not that they shouldn't, but hopefully there should be education and context around what that looks like, um, in that everyone has a different experience and that's okay. Absolutely. And, and a lot of, uh, you know, trauma that's happened is usually like within the family, with parents, for adults who have who've been abused or neglected by their parents and the parents are still alive. uh, How do we 
how how do we get them to communicate with the parents uh, so that that that's kind of not resolved but uh, managed or do we even need to bring the parents into the fold? Yeah, I think that's a case by case situation in that some people's parents might be more open to the idea of having those conversations than others. And for those who are open, uh, prepping that prepping for that conversation, I'll walk clients through, you know, um, identifying their primary feelings and what they actually want to communicate and what are their hopes for the interaction, as well as preparing them for things not going the way that they, again, they expect um, and not being attached to the outcome um, because it's not necessary that things have to be resolved with them, but it might turn into having to accept, you know, um, do some acceptance work to manage that. Now, I always ask, you know, is it safe? Is the situation, is this person safe both physically and emotionally to try to do a repair with? Because some people, some people's parents, mm, how do I say this in a nice way? Some people's parents suck. That's probably the nicest way I can put it. And and they're not going to be able to have this conversation in a way that doesn't create more harm. So if that's the case, my client being that they're my priority as their therapist, I'm going to prep my client by help, helping them to understand what are your needs, what are your boundaries to make sure that you're safe both physically and emotionally, and how can you do your best to try to either have these conversations or learn to accept them as they are? Or do you need to have more boundaries and space physically from this person um, if it's really just not a good situation? So it really is case by case. Um, ideally, it would be lovely to do the repair, but it realistically, not every parent is in a place to have that confrontation. Right, right. Um, I, I want to switch gears just a little bit and, and um, because you worked in a juvenile detention facility uh, mm-hmm. where, uh, if, I, if I understand it correctly, you helped um, kids who had thought about or were thinking about ending their lives and, and talking them through it and, 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 and you know, keeping them here on earth uh, for a little while longer. What, uh, what was the... The, the precipitating events are like, why? And then um, how did we uh, give them coping skills uh, to, to keep them moving forward? Yeah, that was a crazy job because I had applied for it with the county and I didn't know what it was until my first day. And they're like, you're going to talk about suicide. And I was like, great. So it was difficult because there are young people. Um, I think it's challenging to to see such young, vibrant people with potential feel so hopeless. And most of the time when they came in, they had histories of, of trauma, you know, and, and really difficult life circumstances and situations. Some of them have been through more than some you know, 40, 50, 60 year olds on the planet. Um, They had lived a lot of life in a short amount of time. And I think Oprah said it that everyone wants three things, to be seen, to be heard, and to be understood. Now, life isn't perfect. So sometimes we don't get all three of those needs met. And we can hold on hope again, right? When maybe one of those things or two of those things is met 
at some level. But I think when people get to a point where they don't feel all three, they don't feel seen, they don't feel heard, they don't feel understood. That's what leads to despair and hopelessness and feeling worthless and feeling like, one, what is the point? And two, I don't feel like this is ever going to change. So that's the situation that a lot of those kids were in. And sometimes it was difficult to argue with them because they're to tell a 13 year old, you know, let's see how we can help you hang on till you're 18. Cause the situations that they were in were for a lack of better terms, like, I don't know, I'm trying not to curse, but they were bad. You know, it was really, really bad. And they couldn't just up and leave their situation because they're minors. They don't even have control over their own lives. Either the court controlled their life, their sucky parents controlled their life, their sucky foster care, whoever, you know, controlled their life. They were so, um, they felt so powerless that they felt like there was no other way. So thankfully, um, you know, our work was to ensure that we could give them short-term tools to manage their experience while they were in the detention center. Things like, again, the mindfulness, challenging the thoughts that they have coming up, um, just holding space for them and, and sometimes allowing, allowing them to be seen and heard and understood by us for that amount of time that we were chatting, which again, all we need is hope. So if they felt hope after talking with one of us on the mental health treatment team, then they can get through the night until the next day because we would see them every single day that they were in detention if they were on the suicide watch until we decided if we thought that they could come off of suicide watch because of their circumstances. And then we would watch them. We would check in with them week to week. If we could talk about things that brought them hope, like you said, the key question might be what brings you hope then that could get them to the next day, that could get them to their court date, that could get them out of juvie, that could get them hopefully in contact in contact with the right resources to help them get to a place that they did have more power and influence over their own life. I love that. Now, I because I've, you know, I've heard that a million times, we all want to be seen, heard, understood. Can we break down which what each three of those looks like? Because I think that a lot of people don't even know that that's what mm. they need, especially in a, in relationships uh, or from themselves. And, and so we, 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 we look for it in these very, in uh, very robotic ways or habitual ways. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, like the, the kid who acts up or acts out to be seen, but doesn't realize that uh, maybe they could join a theater group to be seen. So can we talk right. about what each one of those looks like? Both yeah, healthy um, and unhealthily. So I, I'm really observant, and I qual I like kind of categorize myself as an introvert. So I'm always just watching people when I go to places. And I think it was the Super Bowl last year that I went with my partner to a Super Bowl party, and we walked in, and all of the adults were on the couch, you know, watching the whatever, the Super Bowl commercials or the commentating that was going on. We walk in and we say hi to everybody. And then I say hi to all the adults. But then I go and I look over at the kids and I look them in their eye and I say hi and I ask, their, I ask them their name. Because I think that adults have a tendency to overlook, right? That means we're not seeing children's presence. And 
it seems really mundane or unnecessary, but the kid is there. They have eyes, they have ears. So if people walk into a room and they don't even acknowledge your existence, even if you're five, even if you're eight or 10 years old, that means something. And if that happens over and over and over again, um, well into your teens and adulthood, then that's going to leave an imprint. And so I think that a lot of the time, um, if you go somewhere with a kid, introduce them as if you were to introduce an adult. Just because the kid's not involved in the conversation doesn't mean that they're not physically there. You know what I mean? So I think small little gestures like that make people feel seen, like their their existence is valid. Their existence, they exist, you know? So that's the first thing that kind of pops up in my head. The opposite of that would be not acknowledging the existence of a person, you know what I mean? Like in a room or on the phone or whatever, in an interaction, um, talking about kids as if they're not there. When we talk about kids in the third person or whatever, when they're sitting right there, I, when I'm doing family therapy, I'm talking as if we're including the child in the conversation. It's not going to be me and the other adult in the room talking about the kid that's sitting right there. And they're like, Oh, well, Johnny's such a hot mess and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, let's rework that conversation to include them in this. Um, I think that that's one way to be seen and then one way to, to not see them as people um, valid and existing here on the planet. To be heard is to honor that kids have something to say. Now, do we just let them talk out of turn and be reckless? No, but we want to leave space for children to express their ideas, even though they're long-winded sometimes, boy, I tell you, they want to tell a story. And it, you got to just hold yourself to, you're like, okay, all right, Johnny, uh-huh. You know, like it's it can, sometimes they're long-winded, but it's really, really, really necessary on some level to hold space for children to express themselves with full attention. So now we have electronics. One way to not hear a kid is to, while they're talking to you, be on your electronics and not be looking at them in their face, potentially getting on their level. You know, I I work at a school, so I kneel down a lot um, with the littles and look them in their eyes and treating them like little adults, essentially. The context of our conversation may not be adult, but the way I'm treating you is that I respect you and that you matter and what you have to say, I'm going to listen to. Will I agree all the time? Not necessarily but I'm gonna hear you out and we're gonna have a collaborative conversation. So I think that we go from feeling like we tell little kids what to do because we're guiding them and we're teaching them a lot, but we never grow out of that. I think adults have trouble growing out of and, and evolving with young people as they get older because our hope, hopefully, is to help to integrate them into the adult world to be contributing citizens to society. So that means... The older that they're getting, the more collaborative we have to be, the more responsibility we're giving, the more that what they say gets weighed into the decision-making process. So um, I think that's key. Understood. To understand does not mean to agree. So I think that people get that mixed up and feel like, well, I'm not going to just agree with whatever they say. That's not what the goal is. The goal is to put yourself in their shoes, to practice empathy for a child. So what is it like for a kid who wants to go play with their friends to be told no and what that reaction would look like and why they're responding the way that they are, then you get all upset about it and whatnot. Um, I really, at the end of the day, with the understanding piece is really just about empathy. 
So the more that we can practice empathy with kids, we know that their life isn't going to end, but they're just the age that they are. They only have the life experience that they have. So if they feel like the world is ending, then by all means, we need to act like the world is ending for them because that's how they feel. Um, and then again, coach them, hopefully teaching the children how to gently come back to the moment to understand that really at the end of the day, we can move through most anything. Yeah, you know, all those movies, as always, especially with parents and, and kids in the movies, there's always a scene where the, the kid slams the door and is like, you just don't understand me. <laughs> and, 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 and what is that? The kid, so the kid's really saying that you're, you're not able to meet me mm-hmm. where I am right now. I think the world's ending, and you're saying mm-hmm. that it's not, but that's what it feels like to me. It's constant invalidation. If we think about every time no reaction occurs without a stimulus. So kids aren't just out here slamming doors just for the fun of it, right? There has to be a reason why they're doing what they're doing. There is a reason for every reaction and response for all human beings, but kids are just really honest and straightforward. They don't really, they're not really too much for pretending when they're younger. You know, it's not until a little bit older that we start putting on our masks and pretending that we're okay when we're not. Kids are going to be like, I'm not happy. I'm mad. I'm sad. I'm frustrated. I'm confused. They're going to let you know with their words or with their actions. And so if something's happening, when we can slow down as the adult, hopefully the one with the more wisdom, you know what I mean? To evaluate what's going on and what could be the catalyst for that response, then we can facilitate and help them to maneuver that experience. But I think, unfortunately, a lot of adults are stuck in their 15-year-old brain with their 15-year-old coping skills, you know? And so they're 35 with a 15-year-old brain and coping skills raising a teenager. And so they're in the same place, essentially, you know what I mean? Like, but I could also just be mean. (laughs) <laughs> no, I mean, you're absolutely right. Most of us, uh, you know, because most people don't learn healthy coping skills. We don't learn mm-hmm. self-soothing techniques, yes. uh, especially if you're, you're raising uh, teenagers who mm. everything is the end of the world. It's all <laughs> catastrophic uh, thinking, black and white. And and if we haven't learned how to soothe those uh, those flare ups, um, we, we become adults who kind of re- respond the same way with black and white or, like you said, fight, flight, or freeze. So we either we want to avoid uh, what our kids are going through or what our spouse is even going through, we, you know, because then we see it mm-hmm. between couples and them. Because I know you do marriage counseling also. So, you know, one, we talked about we're adults with 15-year-old brains. So now we have two uh, mm. adults with two 15-year-old brains. <laughs> trying to communicate with each other. They're, they're both all limbic system because their mm-hmm. prefrontal cortex hasn't really, uh, uh, you know, developed the way it should have. And, uh, and then they, then they're like, well, you don't understand me. Well, you don't understand me. And then they get into these, these arguments that sound like two kids. Yep, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's hitting the nail on the head. And I think that the more it really believe that it's, we start with ourselves, all of our solutions start with going within And the more that we can seek to understand ourselves better, to address ourselves honestly and without shame and guilt or judgment, um, then even if nothing around us changes, at least we can be solid in knowing who we are and the decisions that we make being sound. Typically, when we do that, when we start on that journey, 
because people see the results of that work, we become a model and an inspiration to invite people to do their own work. So sometimes people will say, oh, well, my kid this, or, you know, my boyfriend or girlfriend, they, I want them to come to therapy. Well, we can't force Johnny or Jimmy to come to therapy if they don't want to. But you know what you can do? You can focus on yourself and working on your contributions to the relationship and your, you know, whatever you are dealing with as an individual. And as you begin to make progress, they're going to be so amazed and so kind of supportive or understanding that they're going to say, Hey, what's going on here? What are you doing that you're getting these results? Everyone loves a transformation picture, right? Like we live in the day and age where everyone wants like a six pack. So, you know, transformation Tuesdays where we see the before and after, but this is the emotional work that we can't have a picture of necessarily, but it shows up in our actions. It shows up in how we address certain situations as opposed to cussing someone out or stonewalling them. We, we ask different questions. We seem like we're more understanding. We're more able to, you know, handle difficult situations than we were before. And people are like, huh, what's going on now? The person that's not ready to address that is going to run in the other direction or they're going to want to fight to pull you back into the homeostasis of what the relationship looked like before. But those are clear signs as far as like, is this a relationship you want to keep being in or not? You know, we talked about the emotional work. I love to like dig into that a little bit. You know, so many times people talk about journaling. Do you, do you advise journaling in your practice? And if so, and, and what creative ways, besides just the ways we've heard about just writing down your feelings, have you used it and, and found that it to be beneficial? Yeah, I, I recommend everyone journal. I journal myself um, quite a bit because we understand the world through language, mostly. Um, not just talking, but having the process of writing out and our brain and our body going through the process of writing down um, our experiences, good, bad, and otherwise, uh, kind of creates this shift in our being, if that makes sense. So I think that people have a tendency to see journey, journaling as an obligation, like, oh my gosh, every day I got to journal in my journal, I write all my feelings down, blah, blah, blah. And that's just one way to journal. We live in the day and age of technology. So there are journaling apps that will send you a prompt and they might ask you a question. So it's not you just trying to figure out what to write about. Um, it could be that you, you journal for joy. You know what I mean? For a long time, I was journaling for joy and what I would write down were all of the things that I wanted to experience in the day and all of the things that I loved about my relationships with certain people and all the things I hoped to do. And that in and of itself, because the mind and the body don't know the difference between thought and reality helped me to experience and induce the state that I was journaling about. So if journaling about bad feelings isn't helpful, okay, don't, you know what I mean? Like journal about the things that you do enjoy. You can do a gratitude journal. There's bullet journaling. There's so there's, oh my goodness. I don't know if you've heard of it. A wreck it journal. I used to um, recommend wreck it journals to teenagers. And so it's a journal that you wreck pretty much on one page. It's like, run over, have your parent run over your journal to put tire marks in this page, um, poke holes in this page of the journal with a pencil. And so there's so many different options as far as journaling goes to get creative and evoke different emotions and experiences that you just have to start somewhere. And if it's not working, try something different. 
I love so like for someone who is uh, you know they they're feeling suicidal and and they go okay let me sit down and journal I want to kill myself how how would you advise them to proceed with the journaling So for someone that has thoughts of killing themselves I would say that I well I would hope that the journaling wasn't in isolation like they're they're journaling, but they don't have a therapist or they don't have support or one person they can go to or whatever. Um, so I would hope that there is some kind of support in that picture, but while they're journaling again, it's based on, you know, each client being different. I would ask them about what it is they want to, where they're at and what they want to experience. If they were not seen, heard, or understood when they were growing up or whatever, whatever life experiences have led them to the place that they're at now, they might need to journal about those experiences. And then as a therapist, I'll say, bring your journal in. You don't have to read or share with me the exact words in it, but we can talk about what that felt like, what that process was like for you to write all that stuff down. And so you don't have to be seen, heard, or understood by the person, but you might be seen, heard, or understood by your journal. Journal to a person, you know what I mean? Journal to little you or journal to hurt you or journal to future you. So again, because it is a very one-on-one process to figure out their formula specifically, um, I would ask questions around how it's going to be most effective for them specifically. Wow. That's very powerful, right? Currently I'm journaling for vitality. Uh, It's a Mm. word that that's, uh, you know, when I, when I hear a word that I'm like, I never used that word before. I was like, oh, let me, what is this? Let me start Googling this. And, and you're right, because then you start looking for vitality in your life. You start thinking mm-hmm. about how do I express this? And instead of always, uh, you know, the depression, the anxiety, all these, uh, you know, I call them buzzwords or trending words. But there's so many other words that, that people are experiencing uh, that, we don't, that just doesn't, you know, get the, uh, get the media attention. Exactly. Yeah. So I think we have to um, do a little bit more digging and be open, be open to trying something different, be open to what um, path that might lead down so that we can, you know, hopefully have a different experience and start to feel that hope that keeps us going. Do you have a a morning routine? Because I would imagine hearing these stories and uh, doing the work that you do, uh, like, to make sure that you're fortified and shore it up before you, uh, you know, uh, show up for other people. That has to be a process. Yeah. So the morning routine changes. Um, it changes based on the day, based on how I feel, weather, all that fun stuff. But um, ideally, the funny thing is, I think a good morning routine starts the night before. So um, I actually prime myself for my sleep with certain meditations or what it is that I want to, I want my, I will say in my mind or out loud that I want my sleep to re-energize me, to give me rest, to prepare me, all that fun stuff. I used to, um, deal with a lot of, I don't know, I guess at some points it was depression and at other points it was kind of, you know, that being stuck stuff. And so I was, I would always wake up in the morning, really just feeling like, what am I here for? And like, what, like, what is this all about? You know, <laughs> I didn't wake up happy. I'm not a morning person. So the night before I did an experiment and the night before I would say to myself, you know, I want to wake up 
feeling gratitude. I want to wake up feeling energized. I want to wake up feeling joy. And I would prime myself the night before I would go to sleep. And then in the morning I would realize that I felt different than I would when I just went to sleep. So to me, a good morning routine starts the night before I wake up, I listen to meditation music or a curated playlist. So I have my my motivation playlist that has like Big Sean on it and Drake and stuff like that. I have a mellow one that has what's his name? Khalid and um like Coldplay and I will choose what state that I would like to induce. Sometimes I will jump on my bed, sometimes I will journal, sometimes I will go for a run like you said. I also deal with a little bit of anxiety. So um, physical anxiety in that my body is just like, there's so much, I think it's just having so much energy in me that it doesn't know where to go. So running helps me to manage and focus that energy early on first thing. And then my heart rate is different. My energy is different and manageable throughout the day. So, um, I will do that. I think I mentioned journaling already, um, visualization. So it can get really crazy. So I really do my best to try to protect the first 30 minutes to the first hour of the day. And then at nighttime, protecting the last 30 minutes to hour of the day to really just sit with myself, do a check-in of an inventory of where I'm at and what I need so that I can honor myself in that moment and in that day. And when I do that, I tell you, it makes things so much better than when I don't do it. I can clearly see a difference of when I do that stuff and I'm on top of it and when I don't. That sounds similar to my morning routine. I, I, uh, I journal, exercise, read, meditate. Now, you don't, do you drink coffee or tea in the morning? Are you a caffeine person? I drink tea. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm a green tea. My girl just brought back some Century Green Tea. I'm excited. To there try you go. It out tomorrow. She, she knows my heart. Uh, we talked about a lot of things today. Uh, is there anything that we haven't covered that you feel like people that needs to be discussed, people don't know about that, that would improve somebody's mental health or, um, in relationships, any of that? I think we hit a, a lot of topics and a lot of different things. The only thing that I would add is again, that, you know, we have the option of allowing our healing to start from within. And when we do that, when we take the time, allow ourselves to sit with ourselves and figure out and evaluate and see ourselves, um, we get better, better at asking for our needs to be met in from other people. And so if we want our needs to be met by other people, I often tend to feel like we need to meet those needs for ourselves and be the model for other people too emulate, if that makes sense. So see and hear and understand yourself if that's what we seek to have other people do for us. You, you talked about, you know, taking the meat, leaving a bone. When you when you look at the, the relationship between your parents, what's the meat that you want to take with you into your, if you were ever to get married? Yeah. So my parents' relationship, I was only um, exposed to for the first few years of my life, but the meat that I would take is joy, have fun, like continue to have fun with each other. Um, regardless of 
life's challenges. And so I think there's a stand tack in his book called uh, Your Brain on Love. He talks about couples having to tense and pulse. And so being able to tense and pulse in my relationship, even if we have a challenge, can we table it and still watch a movie and enjoy each other? If there's a, a conflict that we need to manage or resolve, can we say, all right, we're going to come back to this, but I still love you. And I still have, we still have inside jokes and we can still go grab dinner and enjoy each other in the midst of these other things that we are tackling together to be teammates, I guess is the best way to put it. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. And then last question that I ask of all my guests is always imagine there may be one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Jacinta? Before you kill yourself, I would say that if no one else cares that I care and that you care, um, here on the phone with me, right? We're having this conversation because we care. And even if we haven't met you yet, we want you to be able to live and fulfill whatever it is within you um, that pulls at your heart and maybe is a part of what causes distress because you see a life that you're not living right now and it's difficult to not be in that place yet. So I care, we care, and if we haven't met you yet, we hope to at some point, you know, reach out. We're here. I, we're, I'm, I know I'm accessible. Shoot me a DM. Like, you know what I mean? I look at every single DM. It might take me a couple of days, but I look at every single DM and every single comment personally and, and have these really honest conversations. So uh, uh, since we're on it, go ahead and plug all your things. Uh, where can people find you? Yeah, so I'm most active on Instagram. So that's Jacent's Gems, J-A-C-E-N-T-S-G-E-M-S. I have also got my own podcast for young creatives looking to remove the roadblocks in the way of their success. And that is Jacent's Gems as well, available wherever you can listen to podcasts. And that's where you can find me. Come, let's chat. Let's have a good conversation. Like everybody is my best friend. Like we're best friends now. You didn't even know it. So there you go. I love. I mean, you said you got Drake and, and DJ Khalid on the playlist, so of course we're best friends. I mean, let's go. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm like, I share, I share my playlist with you. You share yours with me, right? Uh, we're gonna do a swap. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, for the listeners out there, thank you for joining us. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you working with Jacent, for you going to therapy, for you going to counseling, for you sitting down and journaling you uh, going for a walk and uh, asking yourself uh, deeper questions and uh, you know all all the things all the all the numbers call the 1-800-SUICIDE number Uh, there are international numbers there are text lines there are um, uh, groups there's uh, there's all types of resources throughout the world no matter where you are in the world you can access uh, the resources either in person or online Some of them you have to pay, some are sliding scale, some are free. But the point is, there is something out there for you, no matter what your circumstances are. Uh, At the end of the day, and you can also go to thrivewithleo.com to work with yours truly for one-on-one coaching. And with that said, let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Jacent. Thank you. And just a quick reminder, BetterHelp is not a crisis line and wants you to start living a happier life today. 
So go to BetterHelp, H-E-L-P forward slash Leo and enjoy your 10% off today. Today you can start your journey to being happy, to achieving your goals, to feeling heard and connected. You can start communicating now. It's worldwide and you can join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional now. Go to betterhelp.com forward slash Leo to start your journey today. 